1: About the collective stupidity of government, other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self interest. Liberty is not given, it must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance An economy of one with Gary Rathlin, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the US. This is our country. Good evening and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathlin. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, joining me now is Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired. He was a commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack by Al Qaeda in the port of Aden, Yemen. Because of the rigorous training he led daily as commander, he and his crew distinguished themselves by saving the American warship from sinking. He's also the author of Front Burner: Al Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole and currently serves as president of Lipold Strategies LLC, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and long-range strategic planning. Commander, welcome back to An Economy of One. Thank you, Gary. Great to be on again. I appreciate it. You know, you must be the go-to guy. I've seen you on TV all day today. (laughs) You must be the guy to ask about this. So I'm going to ask the obvious questions. I mean, you've been asked a a hundred times. But how does an American uh, warship like the USS John McCain have a fender bender out in the ocean like this?
0: Well, Gary, I think what uh, first and foremost, an investigation is to determine exactly how these vessels came to be that you had nobody able to see a large container ship or oiler ram into the side of that destroyer, why it wasn't tracked on radar. But I think what you're really seeing when it comes right down to it is this is an indication of a systemic failure by the Navy's leadership in that they have not adequately trained manned or equipped these ships to sail in harm's way. Because this was a routine operation, and they have just obviously cut the budget to the point where now we're paying a price in life.
1: You know, I'm not a sailor. I don't know how you steer a ship or anything like that. But, you know, these tankers, you can see them from space. How can somebody not react to... Turn the rudder or, or something. I mean, it just seems weird to me.
0: Well, one of the shortfalls that you have right off the bat, Gary, is that when I used to steam around in the Navy, we had enough manning on my destroyer, USS Cole, which is exactly the same type as USS John S. McCain, that you could have three lookouts one on the uh-huh. port or left side, one on the starboard or right side, and one aft. Now, because of manning cuts, you get one lookout. One guy physically with really? the old what I call the Mark 1, Mod 0 eyeball out there scanning the horizon, and they're facing aft, principally looking to make sure that nobody falls overboard, and they're in communication with the bridge, but now it's all those bridge watch who have their up duties as well to now serve as lookouts. So clearly there's issue with how they are being trained to operate the radars, what they are learning to be able to pl- contact when they come close, and not enough people just looking around the
1: ship. So do the ships nowadays have fewer sailors on them than they did 20 years ago?
0: Absolutely. I commissioned USS Arleigh Burke. It was Mm -hmm. the very first Aegis guided missile destroyer. When we commissioned, Gary, we had 315 personnel on board. Today, most ships, even when they're forward deployed, only have around 260 personnel on board. So you've got an over 20% reduction in manning. The maintenance requirements have generally stayed about the same. So what ends up happening is in order to keep that ship just operating, the sailors have to work longer hours. They work on their duty nights harder. They're working on the weekends. And when you have that much time being taken up just to keep the ship operating, guess what gets cut? Training. Yep. And when training gets cut, you know as well as I do, it's an investment. It's like advertising. You may not see it, but someday you're suddenly going to turn around and say, "Geez, I'm out of business, and I don't know why." And now we're having collisions, and sailors' lives are being lost.
1: You know, I will. I will bet you, Commander. I bet eighty percent of our listeners never realize the the decrease in personnel. Uh, on a ship like that. I, I mean That's news to me. It's the first i have I've heard anybody tell me that that much of a reduction in people.
0: Well, and it's absolutely amazing. And, of course, you're, you're going to talk to the admirals, and they'll say, oh, but you don't understand. The commander doesn't get it. We've made such technological advances, we don't need as many people. We are doing less maintenance on board, so they're not required to do it. But well, what they've really done is that Back in the day when I was operating a ship, if a fire pump broke because it needed new seals, these young sailors knew how to take apart that fire pump, get new seals out of supply from the parts, be able to disassemble it, change out the part, change out the bearings, repack them, put the pump back together and operate it. Now they just tag it out and say, well, we'll get it fixed when we get to shore. So our ability to maintain ships at sea is being lost. Our ability to train people at sea is being lost. And so consequently, what ends up happening is you've got this graceful degradation that has occurred for years now where our sailors aren't able to do their job. The officers aren't being trained because now, hey, we're giving them a CD-ROM and telling them to go to school and learn things when they get to their ship versus the 16 weeks of schooling that I went. And I'll tell you right now. While these ship's manning's may be getting cut, I guarantee you, all the admiral staffs back here in Washington, they're certainly not going to get undercut.
1: <laughs> well, and that being said, I, I I don't know who the the person is that the relieves a a vice admiral of command, but the the vice admiral, uh, how do you pronounce it? O'Coin uh, got relieved. O'Coin, yes. Yeah. yeah, got relieved. I know that at least I think I know that every commander is responsible for the actions of everybody under him. Is that the right thing to do? Was, was he at fault here for being part of this?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And I'll tell you why. For the ships that he's responsible for, you have one collision, you kind of look at it and say, well, that was the CEO who failed to train his crew. Mm -hmm. When you have a second one, you say, Hmm, that's a bit odd. You usually don't have that many, maybe one, one every couple, three years because of a training problem. Then you have a third one, and seven sailors are killed. At that point, that three-star admiral should have said, now is when we hold a safety stand down to figure out what's going on and why this is happening. Instead, he just said, hey, man, I'm only about six weeks, eight weeks away from retirement. I can ride this out. And then we have a fourth ship, and now 10 sailors are killed. So when it looks to him being relieved, hey, he may be a good guy. He was trying to do the right thing. But the bottom line is he did not appreciate the failures that were occurring in the fleet and underestimated it. And for him to be relieved is absolutely the right thing to do. But, Gary, there's a bigger problem than that three-star. And that bigger problem resides right back in Washington, D.C., because the admirals that are back here in Washington are responsible by law in Title X to man, train, and equip the Navy. They have cut manning. They have not trained these ships. They have cut the parts support for them. And now the fleet is having to live with these shortfalls. And that three-star is part of the problem getting blamed. But back here in Washington, all the people that sharpen their pencils, put on the green eye shades, and build the budget— nobody's going to hold them to account. And that starts with the chief of naval operations. And you have to be asking, why aren't we holding those people whose job it is to give these young sailors what they need to operate a ship safely at sea, the tools, the manning, and the training to get it right?
1: Uh, I can't imagine being a parent and having my son or daughter lose their life in any any area, I mean, but it's not an active war zone here. Uh, I can't imagine how these families must feel knowing that, uh, you know, 17 sailors have been lost uh, recently because of lack of training and parts and and that kind of stuff. That's got to be devastating for families, isn't it?
0: Uh, I'm sure it has to be gut-wrenching because these parents— allow their children or encourage them to join the military to become part of something bigger than they are mm-hmm. to truly lead a life of consequence and service to the nation. But they also expect the services to be able to ensure that they properly trained, that they're taken care of, that they can do things safely. And when you have things like this happen over and over and over again and lives start getting lost, every single one of these parents have an absolute right to be going to their congressman and saying, why aren't you giving the military the money that they need to operate the fleet? And I don't care what the commander in chief of those admirals say they need. When you've got constant shortfalls out there. Why aren't you, Congressmen, asking the admirals why and what are you doing to get engaged? So, it's, while it's principally a military issue, these congressmen also bear some responsibility in what's happened.
1: Now, the, the newly appointed commander, uh, Admiral Philip Sawyer, you know him? Uh, is he going to. Is it Sawyer st- or
0: Davidson? I'm not I'm not know. sure. <laughs> I haven't heard who
1: the new I haven't heard who the new commander is well, yet. All uh, I do is he yeah, was relieved. K- Katie handed me notes, so <laughs> I'm going on. <laughs> well on Katie's I'm not notes. questioning Katie. Yeah. There is not
0: a chance I'm going down that road. <laughs> That's right.
1: She said as a newly appointed commander, Rear Admiral Philip Sawyer. Good replacement. You think he's the guy to to uh this? Uh, I, maybe I fix have every this?
0: confidence I have every confidence that uh, they're going to walk into this. But the problem is, Gary, it comes back to Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. You have these admirals who have been engaged in the budget-building process who now are going out to the fleet, and they're going to live with the consequences of their decisions. And as usual, they're going to want to point down the chain of command rather than absorbing any accountability themselves. And I think it's just unfortunate. I look back here to Washington again. This is their job back here with the CNO, to man, train, and equip the fleet. And clearly there's a systemic problem. It's been going on for years. It does not reside solely with Obama. It resides going back much further than that, where they've slowly cut away at the training budgets. Mm. And now we're living with the consequences of it. And at this point, the Navy is going to have to take a deep breath and invest at Just a massive infusion of training into the fleet to try and bring people back up to the standards that, for me, I lived with them every day. Mm -hmm. But now it's a rarity to find a young sailor on board the ship or a young officer who can do some of the things that I did as a matter of routine. They turn everything over to technology and allow the radar to tell them. How close the ship's coming? Well, why aren't you physically plotting that on a piece of paper yourself, young man or young woman? Right. That's because no officer teaches them anymore.
1: I'm going to do the the tinfoil hat question here for a second because I <laughs> I did read a couple things that kind of speculated that uh, you know maybe the Russians or the Chinese or or somebody is hacking into that technology on these ships and and telling the ships that nothing's there when something's actually there. Is it possible to hack into those systems?
0: While it may be possible, Gary, I consider it highly improbable. And even if that happened, if we had had the manning on the ships where you have three lookouts that are able to observe 360 around the ship, one of those young sailors would have said, hey, why is that ship still aiming right at us and closing? And because of many shortfalls, we don't have that.
1: Great answer. Well, Commander, once again, it's always an honor to speak with you. Uh, one of these days, I'm gonna make it to the shipyard where where we both end up and meet you in person sometime. I feel like I know you. would be that would be fantastic. So uh, appreciate your time tonight. We've been speaking with Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired commanding officer of the USS Cole when it was attacked. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for your service. Convey our appreciation to your, your fellow veterans and sailors and colleagues, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon.
0: Same here, Gary. Glad to be on tonight, and thank you for all your listeners for the support they give those young men and women out there.
1: Our pleasure. Have a good evening, sir. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I find it interesting. Now, I'm not a big Jeff Bezos fan. I said way back in the 90s when he started that he was an idiot. Uh, I didn't think Amazon would go anywhere buying books online when you can go right to the store, look at the book, see if you want it or not, buy it, take it home. Shows I was wrong. No question about that. But everything that Amazon does... Bezos looks at it, I'm sure, from the standpoint of serving customers. And teaming up with Whole Foods is one of those, uh, providing parts, free uh, shipping, all that kind of stuff. And it bothers me because people criticize Amazon for doing what they do. Now, what they're actually trying to do is impede the creation of new jobs and businesses that empower consumers and serve them in a way they wish to be served. If people didn't wanna buy stuff off the internet, off Amazon, there's no law that says they have to. There's always alternatives in the economy. President Trump even said in the last week or so, Amazon is doing great damage to tax paying retailers. Towns, cities, and states throughout the US are being hurt. Many jobs being lost. Amazon has more than 50,000 job openings across the United States to help fulfill customer orders. Saying things shouldn't change is the same as saying things shouldn't get better. Now, if you've listened to me a while, you've learned, you know what, I don't want to buy certain things over the Internet. I don't need to buy toilet paper, paper towels, soap, that kind of stuff. But you know what? The day is coming when I'm going to and have it delivered to my house. Sears did the same thing uh, 150 years ago, and they put companies out of business. They had catalogs, and they revolutionized the retail industry. They were considered the farmer's friend because you could order through a catalog. They kept prices cheaper. Now, there's a lot of progress going on in the economy. How many jobs have been eliminated because of smartphones? how many people are no longer making cameras? How many people are no longer making alarm clocks? All the stuff that your smartphone does used to be done by other industries. Would you rather make smartphones illegal and go back to alarm clocks, go back to cameras, go back to watches, go back to whatever the phone does for you? Would you rather do that? Would you rather go back to not having DVDs or CDs or MP3s? Would you rather? Now some people would. Some people are, you know, vinyl records are kind of making a comeback. And that's kind of a nostalgic thing. I have a, a turntable at home, part of a component system, and I listen to the old old vinyl and albums. But we don't live in order to work. We work in order to live. And when we improve the way we live, we we shop, travel, we also change the nature of businesses and the jobs that make it possible to do those things. Can Walmart and Google team up and challenge Amazon? Nah, not for a long time, but uh, that's the changes. They will make changes, our lives will be better if We choose to participate. Don't forget, coming up the next segment, Raheem Kassam will be joining me, author of the new book, No-Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Raheem Kassam. He's the editor-in-chief of Breitbart London, author of the new book, No-Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. Raheem, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time with us. I uh, uh, got your book. I, I always read the books before I talk to the author and uh, read it in about two sittings and I got to tell you, it was... Uh, quite disturbing quite disturbing but let's start with the basics and tell our listener what what's a no-go zone for those of the uh, people who haven't read the book yet yeah absolutely well uh, you read the book you know there's multiple types of
2: no-go zones uh, these are areas in uh, in Europe that exist at the moment, uh, predominantly, that uh, have large uh, Muslim migrant populations. Uh, some of them, uh, for instance, uh, Molenbeek in Brussels, will be uh, home to terrorist cells, uh, places the authorities are about to raid after terror attacks. Um, some of them will be places where uh, police can't go or won't go, at least in small numbers. There will often have to be police, the police, the police being in these areas to- Try saying that three times quickly. Um, Some of the areas you know you won't want to go to, uh, and and young girls don't go to. So if you are a young girl, you want to stay away. You get harassed, shouted at, spat at, uh, groped, grabbed groomed, you name it, it's taking place all across Europe as well. Uh, Some places the um, postal services don't deliver to, too dangerous. Uh, There was one neighbourhood in Sweden where they couldn't actually build a police station because the contractors refused. It was too dangerous. Uh, So they come in all shapes and sizes, um, but predominantly um, large Muslim populations, uh, North African, Middle Eastern, and South Asian.
1: Now, a little bit later in the book, as I was reading, you made the statement that a no-go zone is not necessarily just geography; that it's also psychological zone as well. Can you clarify that for me?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, that's that's how I describe the uh, San Bernardino chapter in the book. Uh, This is uh, this is a neighborhood in in the United States uh, where there was a terrorist attack uh, just a couple of years ago now that uh, saw two culprits, Saeed Farouk and Tashfeen Malik, um, mm-hmm. attack and, and, and kill and injure their uh, colleagues at the Inland Regional Centre there. And for me, the no-go zone in that scenario is the media and political establishment's refusal to actually discuss the issue. What's, uh, what's taking place there? How are these people getting radicalised? Uh, what sort of mosques are they going to? What is being taught at these mosques? That is almost as much of a problem as the actual physical manifestation of these places because it gives rise to the physical manifestation of these places. That is the, that is the root cause of, of the problems we face in Europe and, indeed, in the United States
1: today. Now, uh, one thing that makes your book unique is you reported from the inside. You physically went into no-go zones in different countries. Did you fear for your safety? And attitudinally, how did that, that affect you going in there?
2: Yes. I mean, can you believe I actually did some uh, original reporting? This is not something that happens much nowadays. Um, you know, the Anderson Coopers of the world on CNN will deny these places exist without ever having tried to go there. I actually took, a, uh, I took somebody from the uh, New York Times magazine with me to Tower Hamlets in East London a few weeks ago. And as soon as we got there, we were told we weren't welcomed by a young group of Muslim men or boys, you know, late teenagers, early 20s. Uh, we saw pro-Taliban graffiti, and, and I took him aside, and I said, "Look, you and I don't share much philosophically, um, but do you think that I, as a as, a, as an editor at Breitbart, uh, overstates the problem here?" And he turned to me and he said, "Actually, I think you probably understate it," which was which was some admission from mm-hmm. from you know a New York Times magazine writer. Um, did I feel uncomfortable? Yes. Did I ever feel afraid? Well, look, I have the benefit of having the name Raheem Kassam in that situation. Um, I'm 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 brown. I sort of look like them. I dress down usually when I'm when I'm at home um, or on business. I'm I'm wearing you know a jacket and a pocket square and a and a button down shirt. Uh, but in these areas, uh, I did no such yeah. thing. Um, and so I didn't make it obvious uh, what I was there to do, why I was there. Um, it was very important to me that I was allowed to do that work without, uh, without being impeded. I know a lot of documentarians go in there and they take their big hefty cameras and they're immediately set upon. Right. They're immediately attacked. I wanted to get the real story. And it wouldn't help if I, um, as, much as, as much as I'm sure my publicists wanted me to get beaten up, um, it wouldn't have helped uh, get the content. Uh, if, I had, uh, if I had not been able to spend a serious amount of time in these areas, like watching and talking to people and understanding what's taking place. So it did cross my mind before I, before I set off on this trip. Uh, but honestly, once you get there, um, you know, the adrenaline takes over, the commitment to the story takes over, um, and, and, and you just sort of go with it. What, what's going to happen is going to happen. Um, and just, just luckily luckily nothing that, that extraordinary did.
1: In addition, I mean, you, you talk about uh, identifying uh, no-go zones, and, and it mm. often often comes up that, you know, there's a lot of big satellite dishes on their houses. What are, what are mm. some of the obs- other observations you made that helped you to identify that you were in a no-go zone?
2: So that's a really important one that you just raised there, and I just want to clarify for the audience what exactly that means. In a lot of these places, uh, the, the inhabitants of these uh, housing complexes, these these, these ghettos, uh, have massive satellite dishes on their balconies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's not because they can't get cable or they can't get t- even terrestrial television, analogue television. It's because they, they want and they require uh, foreign language television because they haven't learned the English language or the Swedish language or the French language or wherever it is they'll be living. And uh, that's a major problem. Other identifying factors, well... The, uh, the dominance, not the existence, but the dominance of halal food in those areas is a sure sign that you, your neighborhood's demographics are changing and they, it could go a certain way. We're seeing this all across America at the moment, of course. Uh, and, and, of course, halal bleeds into the main food supply as well because there is actually an oversupply of it now. Uh, so mainstream chains like P.F. Chang's in the United Kingdom and Quick in France, um, are serving halal food now because it's, oh. it's, it's just more easily available. And, and people don't want to eat that, by the way, because the, the slaughter method is absolutely barbaric, but that's mm-hmm. a conversation for another day. Uh, you will see <laughs> burkas, niqabs, hijabs, the face veils, the face coverings, that's another sign. Uh, you will see uh, the, the diversity, to use, to use one of those words, um, of, of different types of mosques. Because, of course, Islam has many different denominations, uh, and so you'll have lots of different types of mosques, and as a result, you'll have many mosques. So in Hamtramck, just outside of Detroit, this is a 2.1 square mile town, there's actually 17 mosques in that. Small town. Now that's a mosque every third or fourth street corner. Yeah. And indeed, these mosques, some of them, play the Islamic like call to prayer out onto the streets. This has been going on since 2004. There's another sign for you. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of things to, to watch out for. Those are just a few of them. If you want more, you're going to have to read the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Hamtramck. You know, and we're in Northwest Ohio. We're Toledo, Ohio, Detroit, yes. Hamtramck, Dearborn. They're just almost within walking distance of here. Now, Detroit's been through. A lot of history, Detroit riots in the 60s, I remember mm. as a kid, a lot of racial tension up there. How big is the problem in Detroit and their surrounding areas there? Well, I mean, it depends on what you what you count the problem at. Now,
2: you know, my contention in this book is not that every Muslim walking down the street is a threat to your way of life. Right. My contention is that those who, are, who who feel like they want to adhere to the Sharia, which is the Islamic law. Those people are the threats to the way of life. Um, that book is a threat to the way of life. There are many Muslims, by the way, who don't want to, don't want to live their lives the way the Quran tells them to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a significant proportion that do and will. In my country, for instance, uh, 40% of uh, British Muslims, young British Muslims, who were polled by the Pew uh, Institute or Pew Center, they said they want wanted Sharia law in Britain. Uh, one in five said that they backed terrorist attacks, the 7-7 bombings. attacks against the Charlie Hebdo satirists who drew the picture of the Prophet Muhammad repeatedly. Um, that's, uh, that's what we're talking about. Those are the people we're talking about. In Hamtramck, look, you have, you know, some wonderful restaurants, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, different elements of that, that, the Middle Eastern culture and the Bengali culture and different foods and traditions. And, you know, Hamtramck was always one of those places. It was built on Pol- Polish inward migration. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, you, you, you know, you have the Islamic Court of prayer playing out in the streets. And, you know, what somebody said they were interviewed by the New York Times in 2004 about this, and they said, um... You know, I have a problem with people of different skin color, different religion, different race, coming and living here. That's, that's you know, we're all welcoming. That's what we're all about. But they said, I don't want to hear five times a day that your God is greater than mine. Right. And that's what Allahu Akbar means, by the way. Don't don't let the media tell you it means God is great. It does not. It means our God is greater than your God. Mm. Um, and, and and people rightly objected to, to having that, you know, forced upon them every day. It's the first city in the United Kingdom with a majority Muslim council, city council, um, uh, in Dearborn. There is a museum, uh, the Arab American Museum, that is uh, funded by the Saudi government, Saudi Aramco, uh, the Lear Corporation, and indeed, the Deer Ford Corporation, and uh, inside this museum, I went in there, I just thought I'd take a little look, it wasn't ever part of the trip, but I thought, hey, let's have a look at this museum. Sure. There was anti-U.S. propaganda, anti-American propaganda, anti-American government propaganda, anti-Israel propaganda, uh, pictures portraying Israeli soldiers as ghouls and demons. Um, I mean, it was just extraordinary. It wasn't a museum of any sort. Um, it, was, uh, it was a propaganda outfit. There was, there was Palestinian nationalism, you know, rampantly rife, the same sort of nationalism, by the way, that is employed by Hezbollah and Hamas, these two terrorist organizations. I was mortified by it. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the subtitle of the book is how Sharia law is coming to a neighborhood near you, if I was being brutally honest about it, I, the subtitle would be How Sharia Law is Already in a Neighborhood Near You.
1: Mm-hmm. You're very astute. I listened to you on uh, Sirius 125 in the mornings. You're out there. You're very objective in your reporting. Why do the politicians and the leaders not recognize this and almost cater to it? I mean, is it political correctness? Is it uh, a victimhood on the—, on the uh, uh attitudes of the, the the people living there what 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 why don't we address this? Well political correctness is not a uh, cause it's a symptom. Political correctness only, only came about
2: after, the, uh, after they began to fetishize mass migration uh, and multiculturalism. And, and this stems from corporatism. Uh, this, is, this is crony capitalism, if you like. Um, when, when the big corporations say, we need cheap labor, well, what happens? Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg, they chair these large organizations and places like the Marriott firms, they sponsor these think tanks and pressure groups. Um, because they want cheap cheap labor. Uh, they want cheap... Uh, I don't mean to sound flippant about this, but it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, they want cheap maids, chambermaids. They want cheap, uh, uh, you know, c- contract workers. Uh, and so they developed this way of convincing us all that multiculturalism was fine and it would all work out and we'd all blend together and mesh together just fine. Now, some nations, that will apply to. Uh, the RAISE Act that Donald Trump is in- introducing is the same as the Canadian system, is the same as the Australian system, ...immigration systems, and it's the same as what Britain voted for with the Brexit referendum just last year. It's a points-based or merit-based immigration system, i.e. if you can speak a language, if you have a skill, if you're not destitute, if you don't have a communicable disease, then yes, we can all rub along together very, very well. Um, But once you get into falling foul of any of those things, you don't want to learn the language, you don't want to adhere to our set of laws, our rules, um, you you, you, you start losing points on this system. And, and that's that's the most sensible way to approach this. Um, why do the politicians listen now? Well, look. Look at Europe, the United Kingdom, Italy, Netherlands, France, uh, all of these places, Germany, have leaders, chancellors, prime ministers, presidents that have no children. And it might sound... It might sound a little flippant to say that, but actually, you know, in order to preserve a culture and preserve a tradition and preserve a way of life, you have to have skin in the game as far as I'm concerned. If you're in a position like that and you're taking decisions that impact people's lives and cultures and the future of Western civilization, I don't think you're able to truly represent you know, the, the, the importance of passing on to the next generation what you inherited or even something
1: better than you inherited if you have nobody personally to pass it on to. That's that's a great observation. I never really thought about that. But finally, I got about a minute left. I want to switch gears just a little bit. How is the no go zones, the immigration of Muslims coming in the Sharia law attitudes and statue destruction and and wanting to erase a a lot of Americans uh, history? How does that correlate? Is there a correlation there?
2: Massive correlation. We call it the red-green alliance. This is the alliance between hard leftists and then radical Islamists, because, of course, red is the color of communism. I'm mm-hmm. sorry if you're a Republican, but that's <laughs> traditionally what the color is. Sure. Um, and, 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 and what it is, it's about, it's about creating a vacuum, a cultural vacuum, a, a, a vacuum in the rule of law. It's about um, stripping a, a nation or a people of its identity. Once you strip somebody of its identity, once you break them down into the smallest little uh, tabula rasa, or a blank slate, you know, just like Scientologists do, just like mm-hmm. cult leaders do. Then you can build it back up in whatever image you want. Uh, this is a hardline socialist tactic. It's what, the, uh, it's, it, it's what the Islamists have learned as well. They understand that if you take, people, take away people's ability to fight back, i.e. call them an Islamophobe every time they want to ask a tough question right. or, or, or have a preponderance, um, then, then you can build them up in whatever image you want.
1: We've been speaking with Rahim Kassam, editor-in-chief of Breitbart London author of the new book, No-Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. Raheem, this has been a true honor for me, a real treat. It's a terrific book. I appreciate all your work you're doing and and the risk you're taking for us to bring us this information. And I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon and chat again. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thank Thank you. you very much. Have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I came across an article, a blog entry, by Scott Adams. If you know who Scott Adams is, why congratulations. He is the creator and writer of one of my favorite all-time cartoons in the paper. I read it every day, Dilbert. And so Scott Adams writes Dilbert, but he's also a pretty intuitive guy. I think he's conservative but he has a blog at blog.dilbert.com, and we're going to post this on the website probably tomorrow, but I was introduced to this through an American Thinker article called How to Know You're in a Mass Hysteria Bubble, and uh, I won't steal everything because I want you to go to Scott's blog and, and read it through from front to back, but it's not too long, probably three, four pages of stuff, but he wants to spend some time teaching us about mass hysteria. And he says, mass hysteria happens when the public gets a wrong idea about something that has strong emotional content, and it triggers cognitive dissonance that is often supported by confirmation bias. In other words, People spontaneously hallucinate a whole new and usually crazy sounding reality and believe they see plenty of evidence for it. In looking at some of the stuff happening, and we talked a little bit about how it's a master plan to delegitimize the United States and ultimately revoke the Constitution. And I've heard Mark Levin talk similarly I got some quotes here from Rush Limbaugh talking similarly. I think that it's more than a perceived conspiracy plan. I think that it's legitimate. But if we look at mass hysteria, and Scott puts down some signs of mass hysteria, and the first one is the trigger event for cognitive dissonance. Now, Cognitive dissonance happened most recently, November 8th, 2016. The election day. Half the country learned that everything they believed to be both true and obvious turned out to be wrong. We elected a Donald Trump. We did not elect Hillary Clinton. Now, the wrong about everything crowd decided that the only way the world made any sense with their egos intact. Is that either the Russians helped Donald Trump win, or there's a whole lot more racists in the country than they ever imagined, and Donald Trump is their king. Trump supporters didn't have any trigger event for cognitive dissonance when Trump won. Their worldview was confirmed. One of the other signs of mass hysteria is an oversized reaction look at what happened in Charlottesville. Now, it'd be hard to overreact to a Nazi murder or to races marching in the streets with torches. That that demands a strong reaction. But if a Republican agrees with you that Nazis are the worst, and you threaten to punch that Republican for not agreeing with you exactly the right way, that's an oversized reaction. And finally, being in a Hysterical bubble, the insult without supporting argument. When people actually disagree with me, they offer reasons without hesitation. I got no problem being in that discussion. But when they start insulting and calling names and resorting to defamation, of character start resorting to emotional comments that's when it all breaks down i want you to have a great day be an individual be self-reliant be economy of one i'm gary rathman we'll see you next time
0: this is our- The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC registered investment advisor.